welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. Once again, I'm Dane Wallace here with Freya Spence, and today we're going to dive into the topic of chronic invisible illness with a focus on mast cell activation syndrome and the power of holistic healing. Our guest today is Amber Walker, author of the book, Mast Cells United. Amber is a physical therapist who is passionate about public health and the chronic illness patient community. Once completely sidelined by mast cell activation syndrome, she has now written an incredibly informative book while regaining the ability to return to career activities and outdoor adventures, thanks to the help of a comprehensive medical team and naturopathic treatment. Amber is a huge advocate for the MCAS population and is a wealth of knowledge for anyone whose immune system has gone into overdrive for any number of seemingly unexplained reasons. As always, if you appreciate our content, please subscribe and share. And with every positive rating and review, we're sure to reach more and more with the latest health research and recommendations. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy our conversation with the lovely Amber Walker. So Amber, welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast. Thank you so much. It really is an honor to be here. I'm really excited to chat with you guys today. We were so excited that uh, you said yes to our request to the podcast. For our listeners, they will know that you've released a book recently. But what we wanted to do before we dive into some of the topics that your book explores, as well as what your profession currently looks like, can you give us a little bit of information on your story and your path from athlete? growing up in Alaska, to physiotherapist, and to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I will try to keep this part concise. Um, <laughs> if listeners <laughs> do want to know kind of the the longer version, it's uh, the first chapter of the book does get into that personal journey I've had uh, with chronic illness. But ooh, it is tough to summarize, as I'm sure everybody can relate. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, did, I, did. I grew up in Alaska and was always an athlete. I was a competitive swimmer growing up um, and got into running and kind of more of the distance stuff eventually later on. But, you know, as a teenager, I started to have some strange symptoms that I could ignore most of them. Um, you know, the biggest one I think was probably these abdominal attacks I would get that would cause pretty severe pain and swelling that would last several days. Usually they were pretty disabling and nobody could really figure out what was causing those. But, you know, otherwise I kind of pushed through symptoms in teenage years. And it was really in my twenties where things started to become more in my face, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to list symptoms, but we'll just say like 30, 40, 50 different types of symptoms would happen um, with really no rhyme or reason. It was very puzzling and mysterious, you know, went to so many different doctors and really could never figure out what was going on. It was really, you know, system wide, everything from the gut to neurological, um, orthopedic, you name it. Essentially, though, when I got into my 30s, I really had a bunch of tipping points for my system that made these this sort of bizarre um, storm of symptoms that would come on. And sometimes it'd be acute tax or things like anaphylaxis. And other times it would just be a lot of chronically uh, unwell type symptoms. But essentially in my 30s was kind of when I hit rock bottom, was um, really unable to work or function in daily life. And uh, that is thankfully when I also started getting answers and, and was able to move forward and find healing. But uh, it's been quite the journey. Um, you know, a lot of labels along the way, uh, you know, we'll probably talk mostly about mast cell activation syndrome today. Um, and that was certainly one that I discovered that was really helpful. Um, hereditary angioedema was another condition that I was labeled with that triggers uh, pretty severe swelling and pain and, and dysfunction 
that explain those attacks that I started getting when I was younger. Um, and then just a lot of a lot of labels like Lyme disease, Epstein-Barr, Hashimoto's uh, that were uncovered over the years, um, you know, POTS and dysautonomia, uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, all that good stuff. So um, it was it was quite the journey as I sort of collected this resume, if you will, of chronic illnesses. But uh, thankfully, I was also able to to find great healing through naturopathic care and, and functional medicine. Um, you know, I think as an athlete, I I maybe that delayed diagnosis in some ways because I pushed through a lot of symptoms over the years um, and and was kind of embarrassed because nobody could really tell me what was actually going on with my body. Uh, you know, there were there's certainly tipping points like mold, um, international travel. I lived abroad for a while, um, ended up getting parasites and all that fun stuff. Um, you know, there were things like vaccines um, and exposure to, to insect venom, uh, like yellow jacket venom, um, allergy shots, and even, you know, regular exposure to things like chlorine or the freak exposure I had to, to carbon monoxide that all I think contributed to my system just kind of becoming more and more toxic and eventually um, just had enough and couldn't really function. So that's kind of my best abbreviated version, I guess, <laughs> of my, my patient journey. <laughs> that's a pretty good abbreviated version because having read your book that does include that, which I thought was a really important part of the book to give people a good picture of just how broad the symptoms can be. And I, I definitely connected with being an athlete and pushing through. And there are so many symptoms that I found myself nodding along with that I had just dismissed. And and I think as a kid and as a teen, you can kind of just say like, well, I guess this is how it goes. Like, I have no idea. You have no, you're a blank slate of information as a kid. And you're just kind of like, oh, I guess everybody's guts does this. This must be normal. Or I guess everybody gets hives all the time, or maybe not everybody does, but I do. I guess this is the way it is. So um, you're right. It's almost like a compounding of issues is required in order to really determine what it is. And um, the collection of labels is an interesting one that I'd like to get to in a little bit. But can you also fill the listeners in in terms of like your path through physiotherapy and then where you are today with functional medicine? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, physical therapy, I'm actually coming up on my 10-year reunion of being a PT, uh, so that's, that's exciting. Time really flies. But um, yeah, I've, I've always been drawn to sports medicine. I think that's definitely what initially kind of pulled me into PT. I, I didn't start out really passionate about working with patients who are chronically ill by any means, but certainly my own um, injuries through my college years kind of encouraged me to pursue the, the career. And um, as I got into it, though, I, I really became kind of disheartened with our medical system in certain aspects. Um, I just felt like I was putting so many band-aids on things. I was seeing so many patients who were just chronically unwell and was feeling very frustrated with my, my inability to really help, help them. Now, obviously, physical therapy is tremendously important in so many different ways. And, you know, I'm not talking about the patients that just tore their ACL and are coming in and are, are relatively healthy, but... I was really starting to see over the years more and more of this, um, the chronic illness patient population, patients who would come in with labels like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, which didn't really explain anything, <laughs> um, and trying to get to the bottom of, of their symptoms with them. Um, so that has become my passion. And of course, my own patient journey has also fueled that. Um, but I've been very blessed to have had uh, some some new types of training over the last uh, several years that have really expanded what I can offer patients and, and really especially that, that chronic illness community. Uh, so 
I am actually opening up a practice. It's called Origin Wellness and uh, set to open this spring. Got a couple months to go. So really excited about that. Uh, and really my focus, uh, I'm kind of blending kind of the traditional PT approach with a lot of um, natural medicine and functional medicine strategies to really help get to the root of, of why patients are so inflamed. And that's kind of my big focus. I do practice something called craniobiotic technique. I was trained in that a couple of years ago, and that's been profoundly helpful in terms of helping kind of reset the nervous system and helping the immune system lock onto things like viruses and bacterial infections that might be some of the, the triggers of systemic inflammation or mast cell activation in these patients. Uh, and then I've also really gotten into um, you know, other, other approaches like safe and sound protocol and have really started to focus on the nervous system in general in terms of helping reduce that fight or flight state that a lot of patients uh, find themselves in when they're chronically unwell. So that's kind of more the focus of the practice at this point. And uh, just really excited to um, also offer some telemedicine in 2020 and, and be able to work with patients. So many patients that I see are really homebound and have a very tough time getting to appointments and none, you know, not even thinking about traveling, you know, just, just even getting to an appointment in their local community. So hopefully I'll be able to offer some great resources to that community as well um, in, in a couple different ways. So that's kind of where I'm at today in terms of, of working with patients. I get really excited when people mention Stephen Porges' work, <laughs> the safe and sound protocol developed from uh -huh. polyvagal theory. I get excited because uh, yes, that's been since uh, my personal, I think we all have been driven within our profession in the health industry by our own experiences. So even with regards to being first into like sports meds and injuries and trying to help your uh, own system out and trying to help people out with that and then spotting other things along the way. I think that's a great progression because we learn so much from textbooks, but we also learn so, so much from our own experience and trial and error and essentially wind up being guinea pigs, which doesn't mean that what works for us is going to work for everyone else, it, but it does provide a different side of like a different level of information. And I know that from my own experience, dealing with a lot of subluxations and then getting very, very sick, that spurred me into this career. But also the mold exposure definitely helped solidify certain learning about the system, specifically about mast cells, but also nervous system safety. And that was paired at the same time as a pretty epic brainstem injury. So those oh, were wow. great lessons. But that brings me to the question of whether you are okay to just define what mast cells are for our listeners and what mast cell activation or mast cell disease is. And then we can start getting into some of the questions around that as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, mast, cell, mast cells, first of all, if we start there, are our um, immune system watchdog cells. So they're present in all different parts of the body and they have a lot of really important functions and roles. Uh, they release a lot of different chemical mediators um, most people are familiar with things like histamine, which a lot of people take antihistamines. Uh, that's probably the most notorious one, if you will. But they, they have a ton of different functions in the body. Uh, when we talk about mast cell activation disease, that's sort of the umbrella term for dysfunction in, in these cells. Some patients have too many, a higher quantity, uh, which is something called mastocytosis. But the majority of people find themselves uh, with these cells just being hypersensitive to their environment, if you will, releasing different chemical mediators when they shouldn't be by our standards. And that can create a lot of chronic dysfunction as well as these acute attacks. So uh, not every patient has anaphylaxis, but a lot of patients do have something along that spectrum 
that creates these, these sort of acute windows of time where they're really ill um, and have emergency situations. And then um, a lot of patients also have this underlying sort of chronic systemic funk going on, if you will. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I did write a book about mast cell activation syndrome and I didn't rock the boat too much. I, I don't think in the book, but uh, you know, over the years I've, I've also questioned that as a diagnosis or perhaps more of a label. It's clear that in these patients, those are those cells are very dysfunctional and are going awry. There's no doubt about that. But uh, I guess my bigger life question is why? <laughs> why are these cells so out of whack? What's triggering this dysfunction? Um, and how do we reverse that in a hopefully more natural way? And so that's kind of been my my mission these last few years is to really uncover that in my own body and to try to help other patients uncover that as well. Yeah, I know with with MCAS, there's a lot of core comorbid condition crossover with things like EDS and POTS. Um, you actually have a really nice diagram within your book that goes over kind of the symptoms and how they all interrelate to one another. And it's obviously great to understand that, quote unquote, I have these disorders. But again, digging back into the why and what is the base of this is really far more important for people to kind of figure out and have a discussion around that than it is to just say, oh, here's my label. Oh, I guess that's how it is. Mm -hmm. And so I know that was one of the big things with Freya over the past couple of years. You know, we started working with a naturopath here in Toronto, Dr. Sharon Kelly, um, who we had on the podcast not too long ago. And one of the big takeaways there was she kind of dug into the mast cell thing and said, if you start taking some antihistamines, let's see how that does. And that was a huge help to just kind of get the system back to, to neutral so you could actually start looking a little bit deeper and to start mm-hmm. working on some of the actual root causes because when things are so flared up, it's really, really hard to kind of address that root cause. So can you maybe speak to the challenge of the diagnosis and the variability of the symptoms that that we see? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, boy, the variability of the symptoms. Um <laughs> that that's a tough one. Um, it it really it, the, these cells are in every essentially everywhere in the body, and so um, you know patients find themselves with symptoms in in virtually every system a lot of times at once. I mean, when I say thirty to forty to fifty symptoms at a time, it's not an exaggeration, as I'm sure Freya can relate. It's it's a tricky thing to diagnose. Uh, it really is. There's Right now, there's kind of two different groups of physicians that each have their own criteria, but there's no universal criteria. And this is a relatively new concept. I mean, in the last slightly over a decade is is when we've even really coined this condition. And so when we look at trying to capture this and make a diagnosis, you know, some of the experts really focus on the mast cell mediators, these chemicals that are released and capturing them in a, a specific point in time which is tricky. It's tough. The tests are not very good. Um, We look at some of the old school tests just focused on something called tryptase. And now there's a lot of other chemical mediators that they test for both in the urine and the blood, which can be helpful in showing that these cells are are being overreactive. Um, Some physicians also will test biopsies of different tissue samples. Like a lot of these patients have gut issues and have had at some point a biopsy taken uh, during a colonoscopy or something. And so a lot of times they can stain those cells and that can show us a lot about the mast cells and what's going on there. So that can also be a useful tool for patients um, who are trying to kind of figure out if this is really their issue. It is important to work with a provider to figure out the differential diagnosis process. There are extreme ends of the spectrum. There are patients who do have, and this is very rare, but you know, types of cancer and things like that connected to this. The majority of patients though, 
are eventually labeled with MCAS or mast cell activation syndrome. And the thing I guess that I, if you'll allow me to be on my little soapbox for a moment here, <laughs> the thing that I, I struggle with is that so many patients spend years trying to get the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And that is a lot of time and energy and money and exhaustion and frustration when they could use that time to find some ways to figure out why are my mast cells you know, so overreactive and how can we get to the root issues here and, and really work to, to reverse it. Now, I do think it is, you talked about the role of antihistamines and you know, the, the mainstream approach, there's a lot of you know, medications out there that can really can calm down the system and calm down the mast cells so patients are able to function a little more, introduce a little more foods. And then, like you said, find those root issues. So I'm not, um, you know, poo-pooing that type of an approach at all. I think some patients are so severe. I mean, there are even patients who are on continuous drips of IV Benadryl because they're in and out of anaphylaxis so much. Mm-hmm. There's, um, again, a huge spectrum. Mm-hmm. But I think the take-home messages about diagnosis are that it's tricky. It's difficult to capture. The labs don't always do the appropriate techniques to capture these mediators when they're elevated. Uh, so it can be a very frustrating process. And so I would just encourage patients that, yeah, it is important to figure out what's going on, but it's also really important to figure out um, th- those root issues and to make sure that you have enough, you know, energy and time and resources to dive into that piece as well. I love that you touch on that because I spent a significant amount of time in my teens going about trying to be a normal teenager while managing a lot of medical appointments. And I know a number of the chronic chronically ill or at least labeled as such people that I work with are in the same boat so you spend a lot of time trying to be a normal human while also managing mm-hmm. taxing situations and doctors that don't know what to do with you and going on over and over your history and having so many symptoms that you actually quite frankly forget what you've experienced until you're experiencing it again and one of the big things that I'm grateful for is that I have a mom in medicine who was very pro-natural choices, and I refused to take medications. So I wasn't a good patient in that sense. Um, so <laughs> my personal story, I, I, I've met with every kind of naturopath, nutritionist, dietitian. Uh, yeah, just, just about mm-hmm. everyone trying to figure out, like find somebody who could say more than, oh, that doesn't look right or you shouldn't have to try this hard just to function. And so I, I think with my, I'm very biased in this sense that I do believe that all of us can find an environment and inputs to allow us to thrive without needing to be medicated. I know there are exceptions to that. I'm not anti-medicine. It was just that I personally found every medication I was given, I reacted to. So I made the choice to, and I really didn't want to. I wanted to give my system a chance to not be. So I understand there aren't necessarily, I've taken Benadryl, I've taken uh, more heavy duty things than that, but it's always been um, my big thing. And so when I did have to take antihistamines the other year, it was just to, be able to have water, which I know sounds crazy to a lot of people, but it's like when nothing is going down, you're reacting to everything. It was just something to to stabilize. And um, in the labeling process, I find a lot of people get mislabeled. They get IgE testing and they get allergy testing and nothing comes back with it's false positives, false negatives and so on. But within the labeling process and something you touched on in your book that I thought was so well put was finding a way beyond the labels. 
So you've been through medical trauma, no doubt. A lot of people have been misdiagnosed multiple times throughout years and then moving past that. Can you share how you yourself have found ways to kind of move beyond just a collection of labels? And also I will note that like Dr. Afrin's book was great. I read that a couple of years ago, but I was discouraged, uh, not by him whatsoever, but by the fact that it seemed like every case study wound up on meds. And I was just not willing <laughs> to go that route. Yeah. Oh, there's so much we could unpack in what you just said. Oh, <laughs> and I think, <laughs> yeah, I think we need more time. But, <laughs> you know, I think you bring up a good point, though, I did want to touch on is that some patients do react so poorly to really anything pharmacological and their systems just have this tendency to do so much better on natural substances. Now, not everyone's like that. You know, in the book, I kind of said, well, start out, get to a baseline, what you need to do to kind of be stable. That's priority number one. That absolutely needs to happen. But after that point, um, try to transition. And I think I think it's tough. There's a lot of, there's stigmas out there about um, naturopathic medicine and even functional medicine in some regards. And, you know, I think patients have had bad experiences with one or two providers and they might write off natural medicine altogether too, which is a whole nother topic. But yeah, I can relate to so much of what you just said. <laughs> um, in terms of how I overcame that, the label, it, it was a journey. I did have a period of time where I was really focused on getting diagnosis. And I guess that's where in my hindsight and trying to give advice to patients now is um, to take all of that with a grain of salt, but to also really focus on on those root issues and lifestyle changes and things that bring you peace and healing. Um, it's such a, a complex area. I mean, I think for me, a, a lot of what helped me move past the labels too was just spirituality and my faith. And that whole part of my journey, it's also important to really, and I think we'll probably get into more of toxins later, but it's really important to look at mental toxins as well as physical toxins and to, to make sure that you're not spending too much time on social media or around other patients who might be very frustrated with the medical system, which rightfully so, we all, I'm sure, have <laughs> legit reasons to be to be frustrated with uh, past experiences. But you really have to let that stuff go and move on and kind of walk away uh, from that that side of things. Um, otherwise, you'll drive yourself crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, and I mean, even go back to uh, the book, "The Body Says No," by Dr. Gabor Mate, and just talking about the psychological aspect of things and how that can have a massive impact on you know physical reactions within the body. I think this all kind of rolls into the discussion that we're having today. That book comes up quite often on our podcast, <laughs> but it really does roll into these things. Now, one other thing I just want to touch base on really quickly here, because we did just mention it: the effectiveness of IEG testing. We just want to dive into the dietary side of things for a second. I handle a lot of the nutrition stuff within our business. And a lot of people ask, should I go get IG testing to see, you know, what am I going to, you know, what shouldn't I be eating? And I'm always very reluctant with that just because in my experience, it's just not very effective and it doesn't really give us a lot of information. Can you touch base on that? Yeah, um, I can definitely attempt to talk about that. You know, I'm certainly not an allergist and I don't have professional experience with IgE testing. I can tell you my patient experience yes. <laughs> revealed something one. like 30, 32 or 34 different quote allergies at one point where, you know, when you look at these patients, diet is such a tricky topic, but so many patients are already so limited by what they, they know they react to that they start to cut those things out. And then if you give them a list, in my case, I was, I was told I was allergic to like a bunch of vegetables and things that are healthy, <laughs> you know, that, that I should be cutting out. 
Um, and they were some of my safe foods. And I was like, this just isn't adding up. I don't think this is accurate. You know, <laughs> something something's off here. Now, I certainly have my, you know, typical like shellfish, tree nut kind of classic allergies that I've had since I was young that um, I do believe those IgE tests are accurate on. But I do think that there's just a lot of imperfection in those types of tests. Mm-hmm. And when patients become so hyperreactive to everything in their environment, there's just a lot of confounding variables. Uh, we look at the purity of the source of the food, even just are they are you reacting to the pesticides or something else, yes. um, some c- cross-contamination, something else in the food source. Uh, there's so many aspects that we could really pull apart there. So I think that it is pretty unreliable in general, and most patients, I think, would agree from their, their personal experience in that area. Though a lot of allergists really do still push that piece, and it is definitely important to know the difference between having true anaphylaxis to something versus mm-hmm. having a random reaction to a food. Um, a lot of, a great example is an apple. I used to, I love apples, but I used to, when I was very ill, I would have anaphylactic type reactions just with a bite of apple one day. And then like five days later, I, nothing. Um, so was I really reacting to that apple or was my system just, was my, you know, kind of bucket, if you will, so overflowing that that just was the one thing that day that set me off. And so I think patients really need to sit down with somebody and kind of tease apart those types of variables uh, to, to really get to the root um, of things. I, I also, uh, I have, I guess I have several soapboxes, but another one might be um, that I'm actually pretty against the, the low histamine diet. That is a trend that has developed in our patient community with really no evidence behind it. And I think a lot of patients, you know, Again, it has to be individualized. You have to go by what, what's going on in your own body and figure out some of these trends. But a lot of patients go to the internet. They find these lists of foods. A lot of foods that are, quote, high in histamine are very healthy foods that the body really needs for healing. And so they dramatically will cut them out to where they're down to a handful of safe foods. Now, that's not to say that's the only reason people get down to a handful of safe foods. That's just in the nature of MCAS. But I would say there are some case, cases where patients are newly diagnosed and they they're desperate to do anything and they really cut things out dramatically. And then that can actually lead to a huge, huge problem. And you're kind of dug yourself in a hole there. So yeah, diet is a tricky topic. And again, I'm not a nutritionist here, but (laughs) um, I do think that there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things that patients try that actually make them worse uh, before they get better in that regard. Yeah. Frey and I are both just sitting here this entire time. You're talking, just like nodding our heads being like, yes, yes. Well, I was also (laughs) laughing about the apple because last night I just said, I, I told Dana I was like I'm on a like I'm at I'm in a no apple mode like sometimes when I'm I'm good I can eat a full apple and it's great and then other times a no apple mode is just because it's something I've identified as it depends on the environment so it's the exact same apple uh organic like no pesticides nothing but in the winter, the tolerance to certain things goes down. And so it's, it's no apple season. Conveniently, <laughs> no, they don't grow no trees <laughs> um, right now. So it's okay. But, but it's just an example of like figuring out that one of the things I kept telling doctors was like, I, ha- I seem to have a tipping point, like something that I can eat today, all of a sudden I can't tomorrow. And that was the part that I couldn't grasp is like with DNA testing and IgE testing and allergist stuff, like I reacted to every pinprick. I was like, none of this makes sense. And and I like your soapbox about the <laughs> no antihistamine because that was a, a little path that I went down when working with 
I can't remember somebody in the functional nutrition side of things years ago. And um, I, I think one of the biggest principles and something you highlighted so nicely in your book and that we have learned much more about in the last few years is just the need to create tolerance in the gut and the need to never, unless it's a true allergy, never completely eradicate a food or a group of foods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with the antihistamine, the other part is just that there's so much conflicting evidence online. And part of that too is like the source depends, but also it depends on how long that thing was in the fridge. Exactly. So it, that brings me to my next question in terms of tolerance and keeping tolerance in the gut, but also keeping tolerance in the body. Can we start touching on some of the environmental factors that you've uncovered within your research and within your own um, personal and professional development? Yes, this is one of my absolute uh, favorite topics, actually. <laughs> um, and it's it can be a slippery slope. I mean, you don't want to be so obsessed with toxins that you're you know, living in a bubble, <laughs> you know, we're all going to be exposed to certain things. Um, and so you have to kind of find a balance in your own life into how much you actually focus on things. But I would say hands down, probably the, the biggest thing in my own personal journey, if we go back there in terms of, for example, improving my food intolerance was actually addressing mold. So many patients who have uh, overactive mast cells have had some kind of exposure to mold. It might not be right now, but it might've been in the past. And, you know, we know that about 25% of the population cannot genetically cannot remove the toxins that that mold creates uh, from their body on their own. They need help with that. And so when that builds up, those toxins can build up that can uh, wreak so much havoc on the body. And for me, going through a Schumacher certified protocol to address mold was profoundly helpful for my healing in terms of being able to diversify my foods again and just really function on a daily basis again, even just getting back to work. Uh, So I think mold is at the top of my list for what I'd like to talk about. Um, And when we talk about mold, there's water damaged buildings, and that's a huge source. Um, A lot of it is inhaled. It can be ingested as well. We know there are certainly food-based mold sources that patients should be aware of. Foods that are most commonly contaminated with mold, you're looking at things like uh, coffee beans, chocolate, and peanuts, which are really, those three are really sad for me. Because <laughs> um, I happen to love all three of those, but um, they do happen to have the higher content when we look at the studies. Um, so mold is a huge, huge one. I think I really feel strongly that that the majority of patients that I've seen that do have MCAS have had some kind of mold. And you look at the research, just a lot of research on mold and Chronic fatigue syndrome, that's a big, big area, or fibromyalgia, but um, there's increasing studies coming out about the links to mold and all these other inflammatory conditions. And I do think it is something that that patients need to be aware of and, and potentially investigate and potentially make some really dramatic changes. For me, I literally got rid of all of my belongings because the, um, the mold spores had permeated into my paper, my books, my clothing, everything. So it's not an easy topic to have with pa- or conversation to have with patients. Um, but if that is an issue, uh, you know, if sears or, you know, inflam- essentially chronic inflammation from mold is a, is a factor, I think that's really important to address with our patients. There's, there's so much in our environment that we are exposed to, uh, whether it's, you know, chemicals and pollutants, heavy metals, um, that can come from products as well as our environment and even food sources. And we look at even just in going back to diet for a minute, all of the things that all the junk in our food supply <laughs> and the changes in our soil over the years, we could probably just do a whole episode on that and talking about the microbiome. But, you know, I think 
we really have to change, make dramatic changes in the way we're approaching food in general to, to reduce the inflammatory load on our bodies. I think this is true for everyone, not just patients that have mast cell issues. Um, it's just the difference is, you know, some patients might not have issues right away or down the road. Some people develop, you know, cancer and things that are more silent initially. Um, so I sometimes joke that our mast cells, we should be thanking them because they're, they're kind of giving us this information. Um, a lot of, you know, patients are starting to be symptomatic in their teens, 20s and 30s. So, hey, we're learning now at that age that something's awry and that we need to make some corrections here. Um, but when we talk about the food su supply and, you know, really just anything processed has to go, <laughs> you know, all the dyes, the additives, the preservatives, the artificial sweeteners, um, you look at foods that have hormones and steroids and antibiotics and that are genetically modified. This, this is not a good scenario for, especially for the patient who's chronically unwell, their system just can't handle that load. Um, of course, pesticides and herbicides. Um, and we've got to be looking at our cooking where and, and what we're using, you know, are we using lots of plastic versus glass? There's a lot of tips in the book about trying to minimize exposure to everyday toxins like that. You know, our healthy health and beauty products, um, even just off gassing of furniture and, and other things important to address for these patients. And then, you know, there's even a section about EMFs and, and the impacts of electromagnetic stress um, when we look at how that influences our body. I think patients with MCAS especially need to be aware of all these factors. Again, like I said, not living in a bubble, but, you know, the more that we can kind of decrease that load, the more patients are going to be able to tolerate more diverse foods and the more their detox organs are going to be able to find some healing so that they can move forward um, and get at those root, those other root issues that are going on. Well, we couldn't agree more. We started uh, turning off our Wi-Fi and, and people criticized that. And we're aware that neighbors, obviously, in houses nearby will still have Wi-Fi, but we found that our sleep improved. And I've felt that difference for years. And people would often just say like, oh, well, your nuts in your head. It's psychosomatic. And I said, well, for somebody who has insomnia, I don't mind. Even if that's in my head, <laughs> I'll keep doing it because it does give me that little bit more sleep. And um, I, I think we can look at, I agree with you completely about learning about these things young, like 20s and 30s. Getting sick is not fun, but having that opportunity to learn is fantastic. And truthfully, we're canaries in a coal mine. So I've always said that about EDS and, and about mast cell uh, reactivity is just that these are things that can impact every human out there. It's just they impact those populations sooner. And it's giving us good insight into the toxic load of our entire environment. And we, I mean, there are studies showing just how much babies are exposed to at birth compared to our grandparents, for example. And um, one of the key things, too, is, is even just water source. So water source is something you touched on. We love that. We bought a Berkey water filter a few years ago, and that even impacted Dane's gut. Can you talk a little bit about some of those innocuous sources of stress, of physical stress? Oh, yeah. Freya, I'm so glad you brought up water. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> um, that is super, super important. We actually just got a new, a new product that came with a little device where you can actually like stick it in the cup of water and, and measure the particles and get a real-time answer to what's, what's in your water, which I think is pretty amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a You're huge You're going to need factor. to tell us what that is. <laughs> yeah, I will. If I can remember the brand. Oh, my goodness. This is embarrassing. <laughs> I can run downstairs and look at it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's... There, Water is, is a big part of this too. I mean, there are patients who are really, Freya, you mentioned that like even water was setting you off at one point. I mean, that is not unusual in this patient population at all. 
and it's definitely something to look at. I mean, in terms of all the the different substances that can be in water and heavy metals, and also um, you know piping in the home and some of these other factors. You know, so it's not just eliminating bottled water because that can be contaminated by the the plastic surrounding, but you know, looking at the whole gamut. A lot of patients will even put like a, a special filter on their shower so that they're not exposed, you know, through the skin and also an in inhalation when you have a hot steamy shower in the water itself is not pure. That can definitely set people off. So I think there's there's a whole host of things you can look at in terms of, of water sources as well. You know, we talked you touched on sleep and insomnia. And I think also what's what's really important what I like to emphasize with patients is the concept of sleep hygiene and just ways to reduce, you know, our, our culture now is so screen-based and it's so detrimental to have that exposure at night. Insomnia really goes hand in hand with a lot of these inflammatory conditions. Um, and it can, you know, that's the time when we need it the most too is, is you know, the, those hours of the night where the liver and some of our other organs are really doing their best work for detoxification. And if, if we're not getting good sleep, that can really be a big factor in a lot of patients healing. So I think there's a lot we could get into there. Um, you know, I also think of, I look at even just the way patients are, are breathing and the kind of perpetual fight or flight state that patients are in as sort of an extra toxin, if you will, to the system. <laughs> and so definitely important to get in tune with that and work on stress reduction in, in different ways. You know, I think we'll talk about exercise in a little bit too, but there's so many things that, that can be reversed. And I think addressing some of these root issues can help reduce that stress on the fight or flight or that sympathetic nervous system. And, and help restore just better overall health for patients. I, I have a question. There. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much in there. I have a question because I started using uh, sound therapy and light therapy and found that that was really quite helpful when I was going through acute mold toxicity. And for the listeners, that kind of thing can bring about completely irrational anxiety. If you're naturally normally calm, you all of a sudden feel like you're going nuts because you're afraid of everything and anything, any sound sounds magnified and your system will jump if somebody closes a cupboard. So I started using sound and light therapy and that was excellent at just down tuning the overall reactivity of, of my system. Are there any things that you in particular recommend that people explore first if they're trying to go into that realm for calming their system down? Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up too. That's awesome that you've had such a good patient experience with those therapies. I've also had a similar experience in my own journey. Um, you know, there's, I don't think there's one program that fits all in this realm. I think there's so many great resources out there when we look at, you know, efforts to kind of reduce that, that sympathetic nervous system tone, help reset, um, kind of rewire the brain. A lot of people talk about the limbic system and the amygdala and kind of that emotional um, stress response that our bodies can kind of be patterned in on a chronic basis and how detrimental that can be. Um, I think it's essential that patients address this in some way, shape, or form. There's probably some of the more popular ones. Programs that are out there would be DNRS. It's a program by Annie Hopper, uh, Dynamic Neural Retraining Systems, I believe, stands for. Yep. And yeah, I don't know if you guys have tried that. I It's on my list for 2020. <laughs> I have not experienced it personally, but it is something that a lot of patients are swearing by, especially in terms of their ability to kind of rewire their brains to be social again, to be less isolated, to be able to tolerate different types of stimulus, whether that's um, engaging with other people, hearing loud noises, whether it's uh, walking by a smoker or somebody with perfume on. Um, I think there's 
there's a lot to that. Um, it is a fairly intensive program, requires a big commitment, but I think that that's, that's good too. That's important. There's another program by Dr. Gupta that is, I believe, a little less time intensive, but also seems to have some great results in the patients I've, I've talked to about that one. Um, again, Safe and Sound works on this, these same concepts, um, and that's a treatment where you basically have uh, headphones on and you spend time listening to different music that has different tones. And over the course of the treatment, you eventually expand to integrate that training into kind of more functional activities. And that's, that's, I'm a big proponent of that one as well. Um, You know, I've done different sound healing experiences with really natural type healers as well. And that has been profoundly helpful. And then, you know, addressing the the nervous system in other ways can be a great tool too. There's uh, something called tension and trauma releasing exercises, which is a type of therapy that elicits a um, sort of like a shaking response that helps the body dissipate and kind of get rid of some of that built up fight or flight. That's a great adjunct to different cognitive therapies. Uh, A lot of these patients have PTSD um, and some may not realize it. PTSD isn't always some overt event that a lot of us might associate it with. But uh, I think that there's, there's a lot of trauma in these patients' lives and even some trauma induced by the medical system, if we're being honest. And so it's so important to address all of those factors with patients um, and helping them, you know, reset that nervous system. And I found, you know, just telling somebody to go meditate while I am a huge fan of meditation is not enough. These patients are so, their wiring is so off after being chronically ill that they really need something a little more invasive, if you will, to address that. So I think combining things like meditation, lifestyle things, exercise, and these nervous system retraining approaches is really key. Yeah, we've, or sorry, we haven't both done the DNRS, but we've both looked into it and I've done it. It wasn't really the best program for me. I could really appreciate a lot of uh, the things that she was teaching and the background she was giving people just to understand that your nervous system is responding the way it's supposed to, or it was, and now it's just on high alert all the time. And we find that with injuries too. Um, You know, somebody hurts their knee and gets a surgery and 10 years later, they still haven't properly learn to reintegrate feeling safe on that leg. It's a very similar thing. It's just, it's your full nervous system. And so it can feel a lot more ambiguous than, you know, an ACL tear uh, that got repaired. Mm -hmm. People can feel more concrete in that. And then I find that with the nervous system stuff, it's a little bit more uh, vague. So she does a great job of that, of educating. I do think it's a good program. We've recommended it to certain clients. It didn't work. It just wasn't the right fit for me, but I found some mm-hmm. other ones um, to add to the list that you just mentioned. There are a couple there that oh, I, yeah. haven't I would love of. to hear your, your advice. Well, the other one <laughs> that I actually found really helpful was called brain tap. And part of the reason behind that is because I, I did a lot of one-on-one sessions, uh, a lot of toning mm-hmm. and various sound therapy because even when it comes to PTSD and trauma, you don't want to just keep talking about it because in many ways that reaffirms the whole thing. And right. um, with the brain tap, it's a combination of sound and light and you get to lie there and it calms your system right down. Dane has tried it as well. We found uh, it helped me sleep through points of wakefulness that I used to experience anxiety with, like I'd wake up with um, hyperventilation. 
that Mm -hmm. was uh, quite readily addressed with this. And one of the biggest things is many people who are unwell or dealing with these nervous system things are putting so much effort into all pieces of their day. And it was nice to find a tool that didn't require quite as much effort because you're absolutely right. The DNRS is a great system that requires a ton of effort and focus. Mm -hmm. I do think it's very educational, but for the person who's already doing quite a bit of work, it's more work. So yeah, it's just finding a balance, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. That is great. I'm um, really glad that you brought that one up. I'm definitely going to look into that. That sounds really cool. And I think one of the really important things to just spell out here is, again, like we're speaking about mast cells. Everyone has mast cells. Everyone has an immune system. And I think this is why there's a lot of confusion within the health industry and fitness industry where some people say, oh, well, eating organic foods or whole foods isn't important or having a filtered water is not important. Well, it depends on the person. We're all different in terms of our genetic makeup and then the the contrast between our genetics and our environment and what's what we've been exposed to. So I think it's just really important. There's going to be people out there like me who don't have an invisible illness, who might see some of these things and be like, you know, I can get away with X, Y, Z. And sure, you can, but all of these things are important. It's overall toxic load. And some people are more vulnerable to that and some people are not. So just like anything else in life, it's dosage related. So people like Amber and Freya have discovered it's very, very important that they take all measures to make sure that they position themselves in the right environment for success. But all these factors are good for health. It's just some people like me, I can get away with a few things because I have the genetics to do so. But I just, I I love this podcast. There's so many things we can dig into here and all this information is super valuable. But for example, somebody might realize they get really irritated by vibrations in car travel and then they can't eat food (laughs) after that and wonder why that is. And so even stuff like that can aggravate mast cells, right Amber? Oh yeah. (laughs) You're speaking my language. Exactly. Yeah. And I think what people also don't realize is the cumulative effect of not just toxins, but When we look at other types of load, like viruses, chronic viral infections, chronic bacterial infections, gut, the kind of this vicious cycle with the gut that can happen, that some some folks are um, fortunately just blessed in those areas and their immune systems can handle those types of stressors. It's not that they maybe aren't exposed, but I don't like to point too much of a finger at genetics. You know, that plays a little role, but I think our environments, you know, really dictate a lot of that too. And, And so some people just don't have that cumulative effect build up to where their lifestyle has to be so severe just to function. And and people need to really have compassion because, (laughs) and and kind of stay in their own lane too. I think people can be really critical of what other people are doing. Um, But uh, you know, it's at the end of the day, um, you have to do what's, what's right for your own body. And it's so important to address those other stressors to the system, because if we just remove certain things from our diet, or if we just reduce toxins, but we don't address some of these other loads on the body that the immune system is up against, I think it's just going to be an uphill battle. So I really do think working with a either a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic type provider to uncover those those root issues is so, so key for this patient population. If, if I, you know, hindsight, if I could go back 20 years um, or longer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that they would have been the first place I went, not the last. So I live and learn, I guess. Yeah, I was lucky, as my mom put it, to have a, a hippie granola mother for a mother <laughs> um, because it didn't mm-hmm. mean that we did not eat processed foods. Uh, everything was cooked from scratch, and there was a, a big emphasis on um, natural ways of healing 
as a first port of call outside of acute medical events. <laughs> uh, so mm-hmm. very, very lucky in that sense because we do not choose who we are uh, or what families we were born into and we do not choose what areas of society well that's not the right thing I mean culturally like what is what is normal right because we were technically abnormal as a family a lot of friends said like oh you guys are weird like (laughs) you soak beans and you do this like that's weird so it stood Mm -hmm. out in that sense because most peers had way more processed foods and they did just fine but when it does come to detoxing for this population, I wanted to chat to you about exercise because so many people will wait until they feel well to move. And mm. unfortunately, it's such a, a fine line here too, because it's just like diet is a tolerance point and trying to keep as much tolerance as possible for the sake of immunity rather than going through crazy eliminations that are unguided or unmonitored. But then um, with exercise too, because too much exercise can create a very big reaction, but then not exercising doesn't allow any of our pathways to operate and to clear any toxic load. Mm-hmm. This is such an important topic. Uh, I really feel strongly about it and I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, you know, exercise is definitely my, uh, my jam <laughs> being a PT. Um, and also just having been an athlete for most of my life, um, competitive athlete for several decades. But I think it's interesting. There's a couple types of patients that I tend to see or a couple different approaches to exercise. Um, I, I do work with patients uh, like yourself, Freya, who have really do have that athletic background. And you almost have to pull the reins in a little bit with certain patients because um, they are so used to using exercise as their escape and their way to, to push through. And, and, you know, I think it can be unhealthy. In my case, one of my mentalities when I was still really pushing through symptoms and, and just trying to run these ultra marathons in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, and <laughs> doing all these things was that I felt like the pain that I was going through during those, you know, ultra endurance events and training was pain I could control. It was my way to be in control of my situation when nothing else felt in control. And I don't think that's healthy either. <laughs> I'm glad I recognize it now, but um, you know, I, I think there's, there's probably not as many patients that are on that end of the spectrum, but it is important to have adequate exercise, but not to overdo it. If you overtax the system, you know, that can definitely cut into your your detox capabilities and your essentially your reserves and what your system is is trying to prioritize. That being said, like like I mentioned, it's it's not the majority of the patients with these conditions. Um, I would say the the other end of the spectrum is like you said, people are feeling so awful um, and so fatigued that exercise is just kind of the last last priority on the list. Um, but it is so crucial. And I think a lot of people are kind of all or nothing about it too. They're like, well, I got to go for an hour and I got to do this. And it, no, actually beneficial to exercise for 10 minutes, start somewhere, <laughs> you know, instead of, instead of kind of setting up what, what you think you should be doing or what our culture shows. Um, and I like to kind of have patients think about it on a couple of different, different zones, if you will, um, or levels. You can have your severe flare day where you're really, really not in a good place. Maybe you're not able to get out of bed those days you can still do some kind of exercise laying down in bed, Uh, whether it's breathing exercise, some gentle mobility exercises. um, There are still things that you can be doing on those days. Uh, Maybe you have your kind of middle of the road days where you're like kind of functioning, but it's not great, but you're you're still able to do it. Maybe you have some guidelines for exercise on those days. And then, you know, you have your great days that um, hopefully are happening more and more often where you can really 
get into different types of exercise. So I think it's helpful to kind of break it down like that, to, to not look at it so black and white, but to, to think about all of the different types of exercise that, that are available to you. Um, obviously for detoxification, um, getting to the point of sweating is really helpful and important. And also of course the hydration in that regard, but um, you know, yeah, exercise is, is so, so crucial. Um, a lot of patients too have some pretty big restrictions. We look at the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, patient population and, you know, especially the hypermobile type patients do have a lot of modifications they need to do to, to perform exercise. And maybe they're not the best candidates early on for um, some aggressive classes, but with working with a provider and learning how to modify things to their body, I think that absolutely they should be doing that, that type of thing if, if they can get to that point. There's a lot of, st- you know, different stability things that can really enhance quality of life for EDS. And then you look at dysautonomia as well. Um, patients who have POTS, which is a really common comorbidity with MCAS, a lot of times do not tolerate standing exercise early on. But there are some great protocols and programs out there that can help those patients start uh, with supine uh, exercise or um, seated exercise or other forms, other positions where um, they can slowly kind of gradually build up that tolerance. And so I think it's, again, um, not to like toot my own horn about being a PT, but I think working with physical therapists who have knowledge of these conditions and how to integrate a well-planned exercise program into their daily life is really, really key to finding healing as well. Couldn't agree more. And I mean, part of the reason our company was named Move Daily was because throughout all of my exploration with why I kept getting, quote unquote, spontaneously injured and subluxations from sneezing and things like that was uh, because I always found that if I could at least do something and break the mold of like the mental mold of it must be one hour or it must be 90 minutes. It must be this many exercises. You know, the script that most of us learn if we start learning about weights or running or whatever it is and just not really paying attention to that and learning that, okay, there's always some one little thing I can do every day and just building the options that patients have, I think is so, so key. And I couldn't agree more though that people who are of the EDS population should work with a provider who's able to figure out what their bodies need because I have a number of EDS clients that work with me and every single one of them is different. There are certain guiding principles um, in terms of recovery and how the collagen is congenitally different, but everybody is different based on what their bodies have been exposed to up to that point in their life. Like for you as a runner, I'm sure that you have different expression throughout your body than somebody who never had the opportunity to, to be active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It has to be individualized and customized. And I think too, um, it should be fun. Don't force yourself to do things you hate. <laughs> you know, like if you love being in nature, let's let's build a plan for that. You know, I think there's so many things that that we could get creative with, essentially to to make exercise something that patients look forward to. Um, and a lot of patients will say, oh, I was, I didn't want to start. And then, you know, I actually feel more energized after like, it's kind of that the biggest hump is, is starting just moving. <laughs> um, and so I love that you guys are called move daily. That's great. <laughs> so important. 
Yeah, that's uh, Freya's brainchild, and uh, I just rolled with it because I thought it was beautiful. And uh, yeah, and I think the big takeaway from that little uh, that the past ten minutes is just there. There is something for everyone when it comes to exercise or just daily movement, whatever you, however you want to look at that. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, what state you're in. The body, the cells of the human body require movement for all of their processes. So again, two minutes is something whether that's lying in bed and doing something gentle or, you know, if you, again, like I said, you have a good day and you want to get out in nature and go for a hike. Fantastic. But there is something for everyone and uh, it's always going to be helpful medicine um, if you're not feeling great. So move daily, another plug. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Amen to that. (laughs) I do like though that you hit on getting out in nature and um, based on having heard your story I can tell that with the running that was definitely one of your escapes that's certainly one of mine when I could no longer run I I picked up cycling more so I could get out of the city is getting sunshine and nature something that you make a priority for your patients yeah definitely you know I think this time of year so it's February right Um, (laughs) it's probably one of the toughest times for a lot of patients uh, who live in colder climates and there's a lot of variability in our patient population in terms of tolerance to heat and cold. So there's a lot of factors to work around there, but I would say that, um, you know, the, one of the things that I'm excited to offer this year is uh, therapeutic paddle boarding and individual and group sessions with patients. I think that there's, well, there's so much you can do on a SUP. It's, it's, I could probably ramble about that for a while, but I won't. But I think the bottom line, like you guys said, is it doesn't have to be this or that. It just has to be, um, you know, enjoyable and custom tailored to that that person. But yeah, for me, time around the water is absolutely healing. A friend from PT school and I started up a paddleboarding company up there and it was um, absolutely incredible experience uh, just on all fronts, whether we're paddling around glaciers or uh, doing, you know, fitness classes like um, sup yoga or Pilates on the boards. It was just uh, such a, such an incredible experience um, just getting out in nature like that. There's so much that you can do for all abilities, you know, I think paddleboarding is a great analogy, a great example. You can sit on the board, you can lay on it, you don't have to stand, um, <laughs> you know, you can anchor it, you can drop an anchor and do some breathing exercises. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a big passion of mine, something I really enjoy sharing with friends and now hopefully um, this summer sharing with patients too. That's great. And like I said, there's there's something for everyone. And, uh, you know, if you're on the EDS hypermobility spectrum, maybe surfing or, you know, hypothetically something like cliff jumping might not be the uh, <laughs> best uh, result. Not saying that you've ever done that, Amber, but, uh, you know, paddleboarding is maybe a gentler and more appropriate strategy. Yep. Yep. I would agree. Live and learn. <laughs> Definitely. Well, and uh the back end of your book discusses a lot of different holistic strategies and things to be aware of. Environment being a key one, diet, dietary considerations, uh, working with practitioners, and then holistic ways of of healing and moving forward. And quite frankly, I feel like sick or not, much of the population would benefit from reading that, even if they're not interested or or have need to be interested in mast cell activation or finicky immune systems, the back end of the book contains a lot of information on what will bring someone from illness into, like once they're at a baseline into a, a, a thriving state, regardless of their conditions. But also I feel like a lot of people who are really stressed out in our day-to-day could benefit from reading 
a number of those things <laughs> just to calm their system down and to give their bodies just a bit more resiliency by, you know, being aware of what they eat and um, being aware of how much they move and the environment that they're around, including like toxicity from environmental factors, but also from relationships. And I like that you touched on that as well. And um, want to bring up the point that not everybody is going to fully ever get it. And I personally think this is okay, but can you touch on that briefly? Like just the relationship side and then just the need for not everyone to around you to fully get it and what support can look like. Yeah, definitely. This is, yeah, an area that I'm passionate about, but um, certainly not again, an expert on, but I do think that it's a tough, it's a tough journey. Uh, Most of these, most patients, you know, and I, I agree. I think the book really, a lot of the information could apply to pretty much anyone out there. Um, not just this kind of spotlight on mast cell activation issues, but you know, it's, it's very difficult. It's a difficult journey because these patients are typically used to people not believing them and doubting them and questioning them. And it's really easy to kind of get in this defensive mode. Um, And then it, it is really hard on relationships. I mean, we look at where social culture and a lot of, a lot of patients can't go into the homes of their loved ones or family members because of their, you know, different uh, sensitivities and limitations. And a lot of what I get into, I mean, I talk about boundaries and I think it is important to set, set boundaries with others. Um, It is really hard to not care what other people think. I mean, we all struggle with that to some degree, I think, but it it is really important to, to set appropriate boundaries and in relationships and to, we touched on a little bit at the beginning to not get so wrapped up in, in what everybody else is saying and doing. And then again, I really feel strongly that social media, there's some great support groups out there, but it's also important to kind of step back from those and not spend too much time online. Um, there's a, a lot of unhealthy sentiments on there. A lot of patients who feel invalidated and angry and frustrated and, and will um, be very opinionated about different treatment approaches. And, and so I think it's, it's very important to um, kind of have a, a healthy dose. It's like me and the, the news. Like I can't watch the news every day, <laughs> you know, have a healthy dose of that community um, and, and utilize it for all the good it has, but also step away and do what you, you need to heal is, is so important there. It's just, it's tough to summarize this topic. It really is. I mean, uh, I've been blessed to have come across a couple providers that really got it and understood and believed me. And, and I've been, you know, grateful for, for them, but then I've also had a, a huge, um, list of providers who were very um, negative in my own personal journey. And again, the importance of just letting go of all of that cannot be stated enough in, in moving forward. I, I really hope people walk away if they do read the book with, with a feeling that one, that it's not all about the mast cells <laughs> and, the, and that we shouldn't overfocus on that piece. And two, that, that healing is possible and it is, it is possible to reverse these symptoms um, with the right approach. Yeah. Just remembering like you are not broken, you know, like there is a path for you. There's a way to get through this. There are people out there who understand. Um, There are people like you who write books about it. There are people like us who have these podcasts to try and spread that message. But yeah, if there's negativity in your life and people that are bringing you down and making you feel crazy, just know that there are other communities and forums and people out there who speak your language and who can lead you to a better place. Exactly. Exactly. And and also to not get too tunnel vision focused on on kind of that, the silver bullet or that magical treatment. I think it's tough too. Like for a while I was in different groups that just focused on SIBO or just focused on this or that. And I think we really need to zoom out collectively 
when we are working with this patient population um, and, and really focus on those root issues without putting a Band-Aid on things. It's so, so important. Love that. And it, it's it's refreshing when you can zoom out because <laughs> you can mm-hmm. do one thing, but you're not hyper-focused and not every thought is dedicated to that. And I know that even when certain theories were thrown out, they're like, oh, this might be happening. Even EDS, like I didn't go look into it. I didn't want to know, but I asked the provider I was working with at the time kind of what that meant. And we were, you know, worked with the the baseline theory and principle of it and based on family history. I mean, it was unquestionable. And so I tried to work with that theory rather than looking at the label because online was scary. When I later did, I felt like I was far more equipped because I had spent a lot of time finding what strategies did work for me uh, through obviously a lot of trial and error with various providers. But I love that you touch on the impact of forums online. There are some great supportive ones, but at the end of the day, I really encourage people to just go be yourself with your family, go be yourself with your friends and, and communicate, definitely communicate what you need to. Like if you can't go to somebody's house, you don't want them to take it personally, but also staying hyper-focused on a condition. And when all of a sudden all conversations revolve around that, that's exhausting. And it's almost like a loss of identity in the process, which is not super fun for anybody. So it's way more fun to like find a semblance of normalcy or whatever somebody's normal is. And uh, yeah, I don't read the news either. We we discourage a lot of people from reading the news though, because it's a terrible way to start your day nowadays. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> a huge trigger. Oh yeah. yeah. Or wind down. It's just a bad, bad call mm-hmm. and uh, just not worth it. Now with that said, we do have wrap up questions we like to ask all of our guests, which you've probably heard on other podcasts, one of which is, what is the most impactful book you've read recently? Oh, this one. Let's see. I'm an avid reader. I have a really hard time picking favorites. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny, the two that I'm reading right now in terms of um, as a clinician, just getting some more insight is um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk and then Toxic by Neil Nathan. Those are great excellent books so far. I haven't finished them. Um, But in terms of what I generally recommend for patients, I did want to touch on, I'm kind of fascinated with this topic of suffering and finding meaning and suffering and all of that. So there's three books that I really recommend for patients on that topic. Um, The first is the Book of Joy. Uh, It's written by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, as well as Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It's a really incredible perspective from those two. And then I also find it pretty fascinating uh, learning about the Holocaust times, actually. It's, there's a couple of great books, one by Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And then uh, Edith Eager wrote a book. I think it was called The Choice. Uh, those I have read recently and um, just really found that they helped me wrap my mind around the concept of suffering. And I think what's so helpful for, for patients is to get outside of their kind of tunnel vision into their own body and illness and, and what's going on in them and to, to shift some focus externally. And that really brings a great perspective for patients, um, just reading about others' take on uh, suffering. Yeah, perspective is uh, a great drug for, for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, we're excited to look into those, uh, especially those last three books that you mentioned. The first two, we've had several, uh, especially The Body Keeps the Score has been mentioned several times on the podcast. Uh, wonderful book. Oh, funny. Yeah. And Toxic. 
and toxic yeah toxic is uh has been mentioned as well so yeah great books everyone go out run out get them read them but amber another question what is your daily non-negotiable self-care tool or habit maybe you have more than one oh yes i would say there's definitely more than one here um hands down i think my my biggest personal piece is in prayer and spirituality and just having a little quiet time each day, whether that's uh, reading the Bible or a book on spirituality, listening to some uplifting music. Um, There's some great podcasts out there, of course, and then um, even just some journaling or some downtime for that. uh, That's pretty non-negotiable for me and I think has really played a a big role in my my healing journey as a patient and also my ability to to work with patients and to find that balance of uh, being a provider and having that patient background. So that's key. Um, you know, I love to combine those things with getting out in nature. Um, so definitely any, any day I can be in the water somewhere, whether that's on a paddleboard or a surfboard or swimming or in the mountains or on some trails, uh, that's definitely my happy place. Obviously those aren't everyday realities for me right now, but anytime I can combine that spirituality and exercise or time in nature is, is really key for my own uh, stability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we uh, definitely try to find time to ourselves so we can relate to that because I think that's so important for every human. And outside time is just so, so, so important, especially if people live in a concrete jungle. Find a green tree Mm -hmm. somewhere, stare at it for a little bit, walk around it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Maybe not that. Uh, Now, (laughs) if you had five minutes with someone – and you can pick a like specific patient population, or it could just be anybody. What one thing would you try and impart to help them with their well-being? Oh, this is a hard question. <laughs> Again, I don't like to pick one thing. It's so hard. Um, you know, I think, I mean, I don't want to be too redundant here, but I think just the earlier take-home message of reversal of these symptoms and these labels is possible. Healing is possible that um, it's so important to just get to the, the bottom of why the system is so inflamed and is in overdrive and to, to work to restore that and look at those root issues is, is really, really key. Um, I think that we need to get away from the labels. Uh, we really do. And it requires a lot of discipline to do this. Um, it, it really, um, to make these lifestyle changes and to really commit to that that emotional side of healing and to change your diet and, and get on an exercise routine. If you're not, um, these things are, are not easy in daily life. Um, especially when you're already, when you have few spoons as, as a lot of patients like to call it in the, the chronic illness community, um, you know, spoonies, uh, you only have so much energy in the day, but really have to prioritize that and prioritize that, that self care in order to find that healing. Mm-hmm. Really hard to do, especially depending on the environment you have around you too. We're in such a go-go-go society and uh, I feel like a lot of people get trapped with their label because they have to, they feel they have to use it in order to justify something to somebody else. And that I think is is hard uh, for the mm-hmm. patient, especially just because people tend not to listen if the person says, oh, I'm not well or I cannot attend this and they get grilled until okay medically here's the label and then they back off so I I feel like Mm -hmm. it goes back to the point you mentioned a little while ago uh, just about people being less judgmental of everybody (laughs) everyone's happened Mm -hmm. like they decided not to come out for an 8 p.m dinner like just let them 
let them be at home. Like it doesn't have to be a point of contention and just having a little bit more empathy for one another, regardless of whether they have a medical condition or not. I think just personal choice. Mm -hmm. So last but not least, where can people find you? We'll link everything in, of course. And um, we know that you have a new site launching, but where could people most easily find you right now? Yeah. So the the practice that I'm opening up in the spring of 2020 is called Origin Wellness. It's spelled O-R-I-G-I-N. And that website is originwellnesscolorado.com. Uh, then I'll also be getting some uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram stuff going up for that. And that also I wanted to, to mention we are gearing up for some retreats this year for patients. So some of the perhaps patients that are a little further along in their journey or maybe higher functioning that are able to travel, we are excited to uh, be planning a retreat in Colorado in September. And then I'm also gearing up for a potential international retreat, still um, TBD, but (laughs) uh, that's something that's kind of on the horizon as well that I'm really excited. Um, I think that together we can really help each other on this journey. And there's so much to learn in so many disciplines that I think can be really healing for patients. And so trying to kind of get that all in one into one week is really a big goal of mine professionally, in addition to the the regular type consults. And then the other uh, webpage that I do have is kind of more connected to the book, and that is mastcellsunited.com. I do have, again, the social media presence with, uh, with that group as well. Um, and I have put some resources up there, including my favorite podcasts. I'm a big podcast listener. So there's a lot of different resources for patients on there. There's so many websites out there that are, you know, touch on MCAS. And so there's a couple sections on there for kind of more social support and some unique things that I haven't found in other websites around. Um, But it's certainly not the best resource or the most all-inclusive, but that is um, another one as well. So I'd say those two are probably the, uh, the best way to find me. Awesome. Well, as Freya said, we will link all of those into the show notes. Um, And so I guess we'd just like to thank you, Amber. That was uh, a great uh, hour and 20 minutes of conversation about a lot of different topics that I feel like we could have gone way more in depth on. But thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. It has been a really a huge pleasure to chat with you guys today. And I have so much admiration for what you guys are doing and in your local community and beyond. Thank you so much for this podcast. I will continue to be an avid listener. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Amber. And we will see everyone else next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. Thank you. Take care. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.